Welcome to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. This is a podcast where we talk all things culture, leadership and teamwork across business and sport. To all our loyal listeners, the Culture of Things podcast will now have specific episodes produced for YouTube. To ensure you don't miss out on this exclusive YouTube content, head over to YouTube, click on the subscribe button, and hit the notification bell. Now, let's get into the episode. This is my conversation with Phil Agnew. Phil's the Senior Product Marketing Manager at Buffer and host of the Consumer Psychology Podcast, Nudge. Leaders need to understand how people make decisions. Understanding this helps them influence, motivate, and persuade. Psychology and human behavior is a critical element of understanding how to do these ethically. Phil shares many insights on studies around human behavior. You'll learn terms like survivorship bias, authority bias, anchoring, framing, distinctiveness, as well as nudging and how it helps people make decisions. These are the weapons of social seduction. At the end of the interview, Phil shares three books you can read to gain even more knowledge on influence and how people make decisions. After the interview, I share my three key takeaways. Let me know what you think of the interview, good, bad or ugly. We love to get your feedback. This is the Culture of Things podcast. I'm Brendan Rogers. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Phil. Phil, why is applying behavioral science important in marketing? So I spent a huge amount of money and a huge amount of time studying marketing at university in the UK. For your listeners, that's that's 50 grand, 50,000 pounds is what it costs to study marketing. That's a lot of Aussie dollars. <laughs> it's a lot of Aussie dollars, yeah. It's a lot of English pounds. And I spent a lot of money and a lot of time studying it and went into the world of marketing, started doing marketing and thought I should be in a pretty good place to be effective at my job. If I'd spent that amount of time and money studying most other professions, how to be a teacher, how to be a doctor, how to be a lawyer, I would be some way to being effective in those roles. Yeah, I found myself in marketing quite ineffective. I was doing basic marketing tasks, things like writing an email subject line, writing a blog, doing a pitch, creating a sales deck, all these tasks, which are typical marketing tasks. And I found I wasn't very effective. I found that the content I was producing was dull, (laughs) not getting people engaged, and was ultimately not getting results. At some point in my career, I discovered behavioral science, which is psychology, essentially, the psychology of how people make decisions. And underneath that, a subset of that is consumer psychology and how marketers can use an understanding of how people make decisions to improve their work. And as soon as I discovered this field, I I wanted to read everything there was on it. I spoke to experts, I really dived in as much as I could, and I learned a huge number of principles, a huge number of laws, which I think you can apply to marketing, which over the course of my career, I started to apply and got real results. So I've applied it in my job, I've applied it on my podcast. So I've done things like I've run ads, which makes people four times more likely to listen by shifting two two words in my copy. I've told people not to listen to my podcast and told over 100,000 people that on Reddit and have made one of the most successful ads that I've ever produced. I've used nudges like the halo effect and the fresh start effect to build habits around people listening to my podcast. I've used reciprocity to get over 200 five-star reviews on the show as well. It's easy for me to talk about this stuff because it's all mine. I've I've used it in my day job as well for companies like Hotjar and Buffer, two tech companies. 
And for me, behavior science is important marketing because it defines how we make decisions. It's the reason why people litter less in Copenhagen due to some of the studies they've done there. It stops people from speeding. It stops Aussies, we can talk about this later on, from from going to jail and paying their taxes on time. There's a wonderful study around that. And there's an, even an argument that it helped stop or helped end the Cold War, applying a bit of behavioral science as well. So for me, it's important because it's an understanding of how people make decisions and marketers are in the decision-making industry. They are trying to get people to make decisions. And so if you understand how people make decisions, you can be a better marketer. Mate, I actually thought there was no such thing as a silver bullet, but what you've just said, <laughs> I'm thinking this is the silver bullet. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's 100 good lead bullets, which, <laughs> if, <laughs> which if you know them, it's better than nothing. It's definitely better than the water pistol that I was given after my marketing degree. Great analogy. Love it, mate. A number of these things that you've just talked about, obviously we're going to unpack, and this is a leadership podcast, it's not a, a marketing podcast, so we're going to understand that and unpack that in relation to leadership. But what was it that was so fascinating for you about this topic, this psychology and the behavioral science side of things? I think it was evidence, and I think this applies to leadership as well. I think we're in marketing and in the world of entrepreneurship and leadership, we just end up seeing an unbelievable amount of content, which is an unbelievable amount of opinion and ideas, which ultimately is based on nothing more than than just someone's story. And one of the principles of behavior psychology and behavior science is um, the survivorship bias. So you might have heard of this before. The survivorship bias is the idea that the, o- the only stories, the only examples from entrepreneurs and leaderships, leaders that you'll hear are the stories from the successful folk because they are the ones who have survived. They've managed to get to the end. And we heed their advice and we listen to their advice, but we maybe don't realize that the only reason these leaders are in these successful positions is is really just down to mainly luck. And so we might follow their routines, like waking up at 4 a.m. and having green tea and doing yoga for three hours before a cold shower without realizing that the actual reasons behind their success are far more chaotic and far more random. And so why I was really interested in behavioral science and psychology is because it's not based on the thoughts of CEOs and leaders and the examples that they might have. It's based on studies which have been run, peer-reviewed studies and um, studies which have been run in the lab and then replicated in the real world and studies that you and I can try as to try to. We can do them really easily by using things like Google surveys and ads and whatnot. And you can apply these studies and actually learn what works. And I think that's what drew me in because I was struggling in my job and I found that the advice I was getting wasn't working. And so I needed something else. And for me, behavioral science was was the answer. And mate, how does this apply to leadership? So I think it applies in a lot of ways. I think for one, leaders, they need to motivate, they need to influence, they need to persuade. And if leaders don't understand how the human brain works in a way, how people perceive information, they'll struggle to do a lot of those things. So there's a leader that I'm fascinated with, and I'm sure lots of people are, which is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs is many things. He's a genius. He's also chaotic, unbelievably rude and aggressive at times, and manipulative too. But one thing Steve Jobs had is an unbelievable understanding of how people made decisions and how to influence decisions to get people to take action. So I'll give you one example. Right at the start of his career, when he was, I think, still at school, him and Steve Wozniak, who was his fellow Apple co-founder, they developed something called the Blue Box, which was 
a tool that you could use to make long-distant phone calls. This is back in the day when long-distant phone calls cost a lot of money. You could make long-distant phone calls for free. And it was illegal, completely not allowed <laughs> to create this tool. But they went around selling it to people. And they used a sales tactic, which is totally based on the science of, of behavioral psychology. The sales tactic was they would go into... I think different dorms in the university or something like that. They would go in and instead of saying, hey, folks, can I sell you my blue box? Here's what it does. They just said, is George here? So ask that question, is George here? And people would say, ask and say, oh, no, I don't think George is here. Oh, it's just that we um, we were, he, he wanted to buy this blue box and we we're going to sell this blue box today. We were just wondering if George was around. They'd say, no, no, but tell us what the box is. And this opener would, would massively encourage people to actually listen. And the reason why is due to something called social proof. So social proof is the idea that we follow the actions of others. It's an evolutionary trait. When we saw cavemen running out of a cave, we wouldn't go in. We would run out with them. We follow the actions of others. So if you hear that someone called George is looking to buy this product, you think, you naturally think, oh, I should, this is clearly something useful. I should check out what this is as well. So Steve had this understanding for a lot of his career and he applied it in leadership positions as well. So he would often use anchoring to get better deals in, in leadership world. So I think, for example, when he was when he was leaving the first, he worked at Atari for a while and he wanted to go to India to find himself. This is all true. He said, I'm leaving to go find my guru. And in classic Steve Jobs fashion, he said, I, I want you to pay to send me to India. <laughs> so, ridiculous, right? He's leaving his job and he tells an employer, I want you to pay to take me to India. And what this was, was a smart use of anchoring. And anchoring is the idea that we, when we hear a bit of information, we are anchored to it. And so we might not agree with that information, but we're more likely to agree to information which is nearby. So if you go to court and you say, I'm suing McDonald's for a billion dollars because I spilled hot, hot, a hot drink on myself, you will get a bigger compensation than if you said, I'm suing for a million dollars or a hundred million dollars. Not because necessarily the you know just the economics of it simply because people are anchored to that choice it's why rrp prices and sale prices work so well in the store so steve says send me send me to india and they say <laughs> absolutely not he says okay all right well why don't you send me to munich instead i could do some work on the way there and they agree to that so he's, he's, he's very good at manipulating and understanding how to push people's buttons in order to get what he wants. And he applies this to his leadership roles in lots of different scenarios. I think most famously for the presentations that he does, he, he's able to convince people that his products are fantastic. One final example, I know I'm ranting, Brendan, and you're probably thinking, when's he going to show okay, up? Okay, mate, it's fascinating. <laughs> There's one final example, which was when he released the iMac. So he's very good at framing. So he says, when he releases the iMac, this is the, the biggest innovation since the printing press. I'm happy to show you the future of technology. You know, this, this is classic leadership, being able to frame your ideas, frame your projects in a way that makes them interesting for other people. But he also understood distinctiveness. There's this studies, um, and there's this effect called the von Resteroff effect, which was studied by, um, understood by a researcher called Hedrick von Resteroff back in the 1930s. And what she did is she gave participants text that they had to remember. The text was just three letters and they were random combinations of letters and you would get 20, 30 of these combinations to actually try and remember, you know, W, E, R, U, I, Y, so on and so forth. And you had to remember as many as possible. But within those bits of text, there would be one sequence of three numbers, just 
within there. And it didn't matter. You just had to remember as many of these sequences as possible. Turns out people are 30 times more likely to remember the numbers. If you swap it and the letters are the unique thing and the numbers are common, people are 30 times more likely to remember the letters. The very simple things here is that distinctiveness stands out. Something that looks different amongst a set of competitors is more likely to be remembered. So what does Steve do when he launches the iMac? The first thing he does behind him, by the way, is the iMac under a black cloth, which is very smart. <laughs> That's going to make people want it. And he shows up on screen a picture of every desktop computer or popular desktop computer on the market at the moment. Gray, 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 gray. All of them look the same. They all look identical. And he says, I'm happy to introduce you. Or this, he says something along the lines of, this is the... Um, these are the computers that are available up until today. I'm happy to show you the computer of the future. Whips off the cloth and you see this bright blue iMac. The crowd goes wild, gets very excited, and it sticks in the mind. Why does it stick in the mind? Because it's distinctiveness. Now, everyone knows this today. This is commonplace. <laughs> you, you can't make a phone blue and get sales. But at the time, he was leveraging a bias that he knew about, the idea that you know, if you're distinct, you stand out in someone's mind. And so he's a classic leader who has applied loads of these effects to to succeed in business, to get what he wants, to win in negotiations and to market his products in a way that gets them to sell to, well, I mean, billions of people. So there's lots of ways you can apply this. And I think Steve Jobs is a fascinating example. Yeah. And I mean, obviously he was a trailblazer in so many areas. You actually speak in a way that I have to ask this question, either you've studied him and stalked him crazily, or you've been close <laughs> to him at some times. Not stalking. Definitely, definitely not. Definitely not been close to him. Definitely not stalked him. Hey, look, what I mean, he's, he's what have I done? He's he's a. I mean, he's a very. He, he's been written about a lot. You know, movies made about him, books written about immensely. him. There's a great podcast on him. There's a podcast I love called How to Take Over the World. They did an episode on Steve Jobs. Uh, a lot of that is based on that. And then, I mean, I guess what what I'm doing is I'm applying my knowledge of behavioral science to, to unpack what Steve is doing, is doing, and and you know, really figure out what he's doing so for example another thing that was interesting about steve is he he, he loved to, to put skin in the game so skin in the game is the idea that you can put yourself ahead of other people if you showcase your your interests so when he when he tried to get his and, and he tried to get a part from intel i think it was he was making computers at school um, no, it was from Hewlett Packard. The only people who sold this part was from Hewlett Packard. He was a, he was a school kid, and so what he did is he called up Hewlett Packard as a school kid. Just found his phone in the in the phone book, called him up every night for a week, managed to get the part. And the way he does that is because he he puts his skin in the game. He does things other people won't do. He continues to call and creates consistency and showcases this skin in the game. And there's lots of examples of this. But now I just learned this through um through reading about him, listening to podcasts on him, watching videos on him, and, and then, yeah, seeing how, how what he's done in his life and the leadership decisions he's made is, there's, if there's evidence that backs up that that was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. There's lots of evidence that says what he was doing was the wrong thing to do. Interestingly enough, he's definitely not a perfect case. So at least you've clarified that you weren't in the inner circle, you weren't stalking him, you just had a man crush. That'd be good, wouldn't it? I could um, I could seriously benefit from the halo effect if I if I pretended that was <laughs> absolutely great learnings. But what I think my listeners and watchers will want to know, certainly I do, is that if you look at Steve Jobs as an example, and you know lots of stuff out there, I get that. But he was also 
guess, unconventional in some of these things that are now conventional wisdom, but also in his behaviors around that stuff. So where does that line sit in some of this behavioral change aspect and what we'll later unpack around nudges that steps over the line from, you know, doing things with the right intent versus that word that you mentioned earlier, manipulation? Where does the line sit? So in terms of manipulation, I think it sits in, are you doing things that you would happily have somebody do to yourself? So it's a very famous example, which is the Google cafeteria. So Google, they understand nudges, they understand the psychology of behavior, and they realized that they could change how the cafeteria was organized to dramatically increase the, or dramatically decrease the amount of unhealthy choices people made in the cafeteria. So they could put the carbonated fizzy drinks behind opaque glass rather than clear glass. They could move the salad to eye level and have it as the first thing you see as you come in. They could put the naughty desserts a meter further back than they were. They could make the plates slightly smaller and they'd run all these tests and found they could dramatically improve the quality of the food. But they had a real dilemma about whether or not they should implement this because they weren't sure whether it was manipulation or not. They they weren't sure whether, okay, is this something that we would want to happen to ourselves? Would we want to be subtly nudged towards healthier eating? And they eventually decided to do it. And the reason they decided to do it is because if they don't do it, they're still nudging people in the other direction. (laughs) If they don't make these changes, they're just nudging people towards unhealthy choices. In a way, everything's a nudge. But I think that's always something you should you should ask yourself is well, is this if is this something that I would like to happen to myself? If it if it's not, then it's probably bordering on manipulation. So I think that's important to to consider. And then with Steve as well, a lot of what he did, nobody no other leader would get away with. There's something called the Prattful effect, which is quite interesting to analyze. It's this idea that if we showcase a weakness or a flaw, we are actually more liked and more likable. So this was done in a study by Elliot Aronson in the 80s, and he filmed actors answering a series of quiz questions correctly and showed those videos to participants and says, how likable is this actor? In one of the variants, the actor spilled coffee down himself after he had finished answering all these questions correctly. And what Aronson found was that people ranked that actor as the most likable. The one that showcased the weakness, his clumsiness, was considered more likable than the others. What's interesting, though, is if that actor hadn't got any questions right and spilled coffee, or less, fewer questions right, and spilled coffee down themselves, they were ranked as less likable than the same actor who answered the same amount of questions right. So it's not that spilling coffee down yourself makes you more likable. It's that when you are seen as competent, showcasing a weakness can be really beneficial. Same has been proved in job interviews. Joe Sylvester got research applicants to apply to dozens of jobs, got to interviews. They all showcase the same experience, skills, qualities, use the same script, except some would showcase a weakness. And those that showcase a weakness would get the jobs unless they didn't have the competency to back them up. And I think this really applies to Steve Jobs. A lot of people read that he, you know, he was aggressive and would shout at people who'd say their work is, you know, explicit, enter, enter your explicit words here genuinely did when he hired someone from Xerox, I think it was. He said, everything you've done up until now has been S-word. <laughs> that was the way he hired him. And leaders can't get away with that unless the only reason Steve Jobs got away with that is because his competence level was at a level which is unparamounted amongst pretty much every leader out there. And he only got away with that because of because of that level. He could showcase that weakness because he had competence in other areas. So as leaders, there's a lot of things he did where you think, well, you actually can't take that on board because you don't match that level of competence and it won't be seen as beneficial. Yeah, I really like that 
reference. I haven't actually heard of that study, but what's going through my head was you mentioned the word competence a number of times and, you know, two factors of trust is character and competence. And so that's what, sort of what's ringing my ears that, you know, people need to be competent, but where the coffee potentially comes in is the character. They become a relatable character. We all spill coffee from time to time or something down our shirt or, or get in an awkward situation, but it, it creates a level of relatability, vulnerability, which is all factors around trust building and, and becoming likable, as you say. Yeah, it's bang on. I've heard I've heard similar ones. I've heard it being competency and warmth as well. That's how Zoe Chance talks about it. And I really like that. I think it's a really smart way of looking at it. You can't just be an arrogant, like arrogant asshole and expect everyone to follow your team. You have to be warm as well if you want to influence people and bring them along. Yeah, what do they say? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So it sort of links yeah. to that, doesn't it? Mm. You mentioned the word nudges you've got a podcast called the nudge podcast i've listened to i think three episodes as part of my research of this pretty cool podcast so it's it's on my to listen to list now so thank you what are nudges yeah so nudges are they're really a subset of what i talk about on the podcast rather than the whole thing so nudges are small tweaks small changes you can make that could encourage a fairly big change in in behavior so Let's do some classic examples. Changing the choice architecture of a choice is a, is a classic nudge. So in the UK previously, organ donation was opt-in. If you wanted to be an organ donor, you had to opt-in, basically. <laughs> you had to, do, to go and declare, I'm an organ donor. And, and only about 15% of people did that, which, which was a problem for the NHS, for the health service. And they decided to change it to opt-out. So people who, I think if you got your driver's license, you basically automatically opted in to being a donor unless you unticked the box and you know there was as endless reminders to allow you to opt out it's not it's not hidden it's not manipulative in that way it's just we're changing the choice architecture so it's an opt-in and the levels of of people opting in to donate their audience when um organs went from about 10 percent to about 90 percent so a tiny tweak tiny change just changing the default as it's called had a dramatic impact on on the amount of of action um the same has been done for pensions in the uk pensions were previously an opt-in and you had to opt in in order to get a pension they changed it to opt out so everybody by default would be opted into a, a convenient pension and you had to opt out if you didn't want to be there and again that's dramatically improved the amount that people um save for their pension um, there are other smaller small things as well. So there's a, there's a wonderful study in Steve Martin's book, The Small Big, which looks at Australians and trying to get them to pay their tax on time. So the problem that the Australian tax collectors had is that uh, millions of Australians weren't paying their tax on time. And there were plenty of issues, you know, plenty of reasons why people didn't pay their tax on time. But one of the reasons that the team identified was that the letters that they were sending, they were just too bland they blended in with every other letter simple white envelope you were you were just less likely to open this letter because it wasn't distinct so all steve and his team did was put a stamp on it a red stamp which said something like urgent and it's a you know tiny tiny thing really if you think about it of all the levers you could pull to get people to pay tax on time putting a red stamp on a letter is, is a fairly small one but that one stamp increased the open rate and i think saved uh, or or it saved Australians millions and millions of dollars in late tax repayments and did something like saved tens of thousands of Australians from actually going to prison, going to jail, because they would have not paid those fines otherwise and not been able to to actually like pay their fines and actually end up in court and potentially jail. So, uh, you know, another really small example. I'll give you one more. 
and this is one that probably most of us experienced, is commitment devices. So we find that we are more likely to commit to doing something if we have made a declaration that we will commit to do it in the first place. So if I asked you, are you going on a, on a run later, Brendan, and you say, oh, um, yeah, I will you're probably quite likely to do it. <laughs> you know, you probably will. But if I say, um, what time will you go on your run and what shoes will you wear and what route will you take? And you talk through all of that, and potentially even if you write it down, you're far more likely to actually do it. It's been proven in, in studies. And the, the best applicants of this are dentists. So when you leave the dentist, you're not told, are you going to come? Oh, by the way, will you come back again? And you say, yeah, 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 you will. You, you're not, that's not what they do. They say, what is the exact time? What's the date? What's, you know, when will we see you again? And can you write it down on this card? And can we book it in? And can you take this card with you so you can remember that you've written it down? And that massively increases the amount of people who end up going to the dentist. Same has been done. Todd Rogers, I think it was the researcher, did the exact same for elections in the US. He would call people up and not say, are you going to vote? He said, what time will you vote? And what polling station will you go to? And how will you get there? And that, again, increased the amount of the likelihood that somebody would go and vote. So all these tiny, really small things, if you think about it, in comparison to big marketing campaigns or other things that you could do, small tweaks that you could make to the way you communicate to improve the effectiveness of communications. Really, that's what nudging is. How does nudging apply on social media? I just want to ask that. I know that doesn't sort of fit in specifically into the leadership side, but I just want people to really understand in a in their day. You've mentioned some examples; they're really good. But social media is just you know everyone's thing, I suppose, good or not good. Where do those nudges apply so they can actually recognise? Oh, that's a nudge. I can really be related to that. Yeah, it's a good question. I think what one thing that is is useful most of us knowing is that these social media apps almost all of them were built by people who had a good understanding of of nudging and behavioral science and what gets people hooked. The apps are specifically designed in a way to make them addictive. And that's not by fluke or by accident. It's intentional because it improves the retention rate of the app. So one of the one of Maybe the most famous examples you when are they not nudging? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that will be less time. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not at all. Um, <laughs> there's there's one example of this which I think really stands out. So Nir Eel talks about it in his book in Indistractable and also in this book Hooked. He also came on my show to talk about it. If anyone wants to listen to that, they're, they're welcome to. I'm joking. It's the only one, I think 13. So he he talks about variable rewards. He shares this fascinating study with rats. And in the study, the rats are basically taught to push a button, push a lever with their pour when they push that lever sugary water will come out of a little drop um, which rats love so they are they're learning that pushing the button creates sugary water but there's two variants there's one variant where the rat pushes the lever and the sugar sugar water comes out every time they push it so action equals reward every time and what they found is over time the they the rats just got bored Eventually, they were like, "I don't need to keep. I don't need to keep pressing this. I don't need to keep coming back to this lever. I can go and sit somewhere. You know, I, I don't. I'm not going to get hooked on this. I will come back eventually and get some more sugary water, but I don't need to keep coming back." In the other variant, when the rats pressed the lever, the sugary water wouldn't always come out. It was set to come out at a random frequency. So you might press it, and it might come out. You might press it ten more times, and it might not come out. So it was variable this reward. And what they found was the rats who had the variable reward 
got hooked on the action of pressing the lever because the reward wasn't consistent it didn't come out every time because it was variable the rats got hooked and they would spend every minute of every day pushing the lever trying to get this sugary water to come out they were getting pretty much the same volume as the other rats they just had a variable reward and this is this is how our social media apps are built today if you remember the good old days of social media arguably we had a news feed which was chronological so it would just show everything that had been published over the last few days there's still variability in there right you load up and you never know what's going to be there but the apps have purposely changed the way they showcase content to benefit from variable rewards so when you load it up today you will get shown almost you know you could get shown anything uh, especially if you load up something like instagram your feed could be some a picture from somebody you know very recently or it could be a picture from somebody you know from a while back which is performing well it could be a reel from an influencer it could be a picture that one of your friends has liked there's huge variability in what you'll see and that's not by accident that's because it's shown it's proven to get you hooked on that content in the same way that the rats were hooked on the sugary water so it's one example but one of the main things I think about when it comes to social media is, is these apps were designed in a way to get us addicted to them, to get us using them in a way that, that would boost the performance of the company that was creating the app. So I think it's important to remember as users because sometimes we just we look at the good sides of social media, not so much anymore, but it's important to remember that, that you know they're built in a way which, which encourages us to get addicted to them. Our interview will continue after this. An expression of gratitude or reciprocity, no matter how large or small, is an important part of a healthy culture and relationships. Our friends at Jangler have a great app that allows you to send a gift card with either a personal video, voice message, or funny gif. You can send it right away or schedule to send on the perfect day and time, so it can be something you set and forget. It's perfect for clients, employees, birthdays, and any celebration where you can't be there in person. It's quick. Easy to send, and you can spend instantly in-store or online when you receive a card. Check it out at www.jangler.com.au. That's www.jangler.com.au. Can nudges make us do, make us humans do stuff that we don't want to do? I think so. So there's this there's a study uh, called the Milgram study uh, done by Stanley. Like, you really you might have heard of it. studies. You have you have. <laughs> you're a fascinating dude. I'm such a loser, aren't I? That is awesome. No, you're not, mate. It's, I find it fascinating. But sorry to break your train of thought. I just. You're <laughs> <laughs> um, bloody studies. Have you done studies yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're not as good as they're not as good as the professionals. Sure they're good enough, mate. I'm sure. This one is interesting, though. But unless you want to ask something else, Ben. No, no, I don't. My, I'm, again, I'm personally fascinated. I'm sure my listeners and viewers will be keen to. I just, yeah, you, you've answered yes. You believe that nudges could make us do something that we don't want to do. Yeah, and there's um, there's a leadership link, I think, in this one. So this this is a bit of research done by Mil- Stanley Milgram back in the 60s. He, I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will have heard of it. In the study, he got normal people off the street normal participants to come in and their job was to administer electric shocks to a fellow participant who was sitting in another room based on whether that participant got questions right or wrong on a test 
Now, what the person administering the shocks didn't know is that the fellow participant who was receiving the shocks wasn't actually a participant. They were they were an actor. They were a stooge. You know, it, they were the only person who was actually a normal person in the study was the person administrating shocks. And the study goes that as the fellow participants get more and more questions wrong, the Harvard professor or Yale professor standing behind them in a white lab coat says, please continue, please keep upping the voltage, please keep upping the voltage. And the outstanding result of this is that 66% of the participants involved in the study administered shocks to a voltage level which would cause cardiac arrest and potentially kill the other participants. They were willing to do something to administer these shocks, which were of you know extremely dangerous levels. And it's not like they had no idea. They purposely made the walls so thin that they could hear the fellow participants screaming, yelling in pain every time they pressed the button and administered the shock. And what this showcases is the powerful power of authority bias. And this is something leaders need to be very, very aware of. As a leader, if you have authority, you can tell somebody what to do and, and, and that can completely override their own cognitive ability to critically think about what, whether what they're doing is right or wrong. You have an unbelievable influence over that person. And in this example, it's encouraging 66% of people to administer lethal electric shocks. Now, if you asked those participants would you ever consider giving a lethal electric shock to someone you don't know for nothing more than an experiment? I guarantee you 100% of them would say, no, I would never do that. And yet, here's an example of a study where the majority have ended up doing it. Now, this study is quite old. There's been replications of it. Not Maybe the replications haven't got to the level of 66%, but there is no doubt that the authority bias is true. There's no doubt that people take actions based on what other people tell them to do. And there's you know, there's no doubt that this stuff can influence you to do things that you, you don't want to do. So as leaders, especially, you have to be very careful with, with how you sort of wield this influence. Yeah, mate. It's. Uh, I think there's a maybe there's a few leaders going around going out to buy a taser gun now, thinking they might be able to get some people to change some behaviour pretty quickly that they want to change. But, look, but being re- being realistic, it is. I have heard that it is fascinating to understand that. I guess you know, being serious, we they can't go out and buy tasers and all as much as some may want to. But let's put that in the context of behavioural change in an in an office environment. Let's say so. Can you share an example that you may have been involved in, you may have you know, utilised, you may have seen used where these nudges, these sort of s- small changes to get to a, a, an ideal or a, a better outcome from a behavioural perspective would apply? There's lots of small stuff. Like there's, I could give a dozens of examples of small tweaks that leaders can do to improve the effectiveness of their work, but I know we don't have all day. I think when I think about... Well, you don't. You're going for a run after this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it's Friday, Friday afternoon at your time. You don't. Um, I don't when I think of... on a Friday night, I can sleep for hours. I'm married, um... kid. I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough. The one thing that comes to mind is D- uh, Daniel Pink's work on on motivation. I think this is something that as as the best leaders I've seen have incorporated a lot of this into how they run their business. So. Daniel Pink is New York Times bestseller. He's done an awful lot of research on all sorts of things from regrets to sales to motivation. And he identified three core pillars of motivation. And the pillars are autonomy, so being able to dictate what you do in your job, purpose, so having 
a job and a role that you think is is valuable is is matching your is, is matching your values and then really interesting mastery so the feeling that what you're working towards is is building a skill and and you can see evidence that that skill is improving and this i think is a really important thing for leaders to consider they should be looking at their workforce and thinking okay are we able to apply autonomy mastery and purpose to each of these individuals can we build a career for them which will push all of these all these values up and encourage them to take hold of them because if if we can't evidence suggests that this would make somebody less likely to stick in their job would increase turnover and make them less likely to perform that sort of optimum output so very general there but i would i think definitely something all leaders need to consider is is those three things are they creating a workplace where there's purpose are they creating a workplace where there's the ability to get mastery and are they giving the autonomy that people need to feel motivated think of your own journey in relation to purpose autonomy and mastery again you've worked for some pretty and still working for some high level tech companies if we put that framing around it in your own mind is any one of those three more important to your satisfaction in what you do yeah good question i mean i've i've definitely picked companies that rank highly on those three things and i and i think there's no, it's no coincidence it, it's clearly a big motivator so buffer where i work at the moment hugely autonomous completely 100% remote team with people around the world you can work the hours you want when you want you work on the projects you want to some extent they actually had a period of their existence buffer i think this was 5 years ago now where they got rid of all management and you just decided what you worked on and you and you didn't report to anyone unsurprisingly didn't work very well it was a bit too radical but you know interesting that they're pushing the the needle in that sense unlimited holiday and time off all of that stuff we're just about to do in a week's time a build week where all of us stop all of our work and just work on projects that we think will you know new projects that we think will help the business so you know clearly pushing the autonomy path very good on mastery so in the idea here is not just budget for to go and learn new things they really highlight that you should be using the time that you need to get better in your job, both inside work and outside. So Buffer run a four-day work week, what I would call the gold standard of a four-day work week, which involves full pay, but for 32 hours, not not 40 hours. And one of the main reasons behind that is to let people get mastery. So to give people the space and the time to do stuff outside of work, which might help them and might, might help, you know, help, help them get mastery. So a huge percentage of us at Buffer have side hustles, other businesses, podcasts, blogs, email newsletters, where we're we're studying things and learning them, and for, for genuinely just our interest in sharing them with the world and allowing us to get sort of mastery. And I've been harping on for an hour about studies, so you know that I'm doing that as well. And then purpose too, yeah, like Buffer, I think really nails down on that. They um they have core values they stand for something so they don't really believe in vc funding so understand the then or they believe in it they understand the value of it but they also understand how negative it can be in terms of vc funding is like investment you get from big companies which can be really disorientating for a company because suddenly you were in control of your own destiny and now you're you might be doing what an investor tells you to do if that's grow it's grow it's fire it's fire and so they've spent a lot of money buying out their investors to get complete ownership but also solely focus on helping small businesses which is a very motivating thing you know knowing that you're supporting the underdog really rather than supporting business businesses is, is a way to really generate purpose so i don't think any single one of them has stood out but i can see in my career that there's no surprise that i've ended up picking companies that showcase that they really are pushing the needle in each of those areas and buffer is a great example of that 
Yeah, on that autonomy piece and then the other side where there's five years ago, I think you said that they got rid of all management and stuff. Can you explain a little bit in your experience how, were you at Buffer then? No, 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 I wasn't. That's right, you were a hot char? Yeah, hot char back then. Actually, no, it would have been a brand watch before that, but yeah. Okay. So with, I guess that's not li- the lived experience with Buffer, but what's the, you probably heard stories about maybe those scenarios are, are where there was no management. So it's sort of like almost like full autonomy without management, but then there's a level of autonomy now, but there's still some direction needed through management and some sort of, I guess, dated organizational structure. I shouldn't say data because organized structure, organizational structure or structure around things is important. Where does that balance sit so that we get the effectiveness of yourself as a, a fantastic, I'm assuming a fantastic employee of Buffer, but have that level of autonomy needed that works for you, gives you that motivation, all that sort of stuff, but still a direction. There's still somebody that you know ultimately has some sort of control over what you're up to. In terms of autonomy, think about it this way. What's the opposite of autonomy? So the opposite of autonomy is micromanagement. It's telling people exactly what to do and how to do it that's a demotivator. So don't do that. Now, autonomy isn't tell them nothing to do and don't tell them any way of doing it because that's too much on the other side. There's, you can't be autonomous there because you don't even know what you're working towards. So I think that's why Buffer's period of no management failed. Good autonomy is maybe showcasing to people where you want to go, but letting them decide how to do it and more importantly, asking them how to do it. So there's a wonderful book called Poles Apart, which really analyzes how to change people's minds and to also how to get people involved in a project. And they really understood the power of questions. If you are doing a pitch or asking somebody to work on something for you, and you just talk about all of the reasons why you should work on this thing, you will struggle to get many people to buy into that. If you make one change to that pitch and you start it with a question, maybe the question is, you know, how would you go about doing this work you're dramatically more likely to increase performance. This has been proved by a study by Katie Milkman from Penn University. She, I think this is her, she got college students at the start of the semester, two variants of college students. One was told to think about how they could improve their job, uh, how they can improve their work and to come up with ways to be more productive. Another was told, was asked the question, how would you give advice to fellow college students on how to improve your work? Those that were asked a question, they were sort of brought along in the journey, given that autonomy and encouragement to think on their own two feet, got better results. Not C to A students, but consistently better results, the, the results that would be akin to, you know, dozens of hours of additional tutoring, stuff like that. So the autonomy for me is is really bringing people along in a journey and letting them take part in it. And I'll finish with a wonderful example, which is from Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan knew how important autonomy was in getting people to vote for him. So as a leader, he had two choices when he was going for his the election back in, I forget what it was, the 80s, I think. And um, in the televised uh, interviews, you can watch this very famous speech. He, he does his closing statement. The context behind this, by the way, is that the economy is in the tank and that the economy's had a has a downturn for the last couple of years. He doesn't say the economy's had a downturn for the last couple of years. We're we're in a recession. This is awful. You shouldn't vote for the incumbent. You should vote for me. He says, ask yourself. So this is a question. He says, ask yourself, are you better off now than you were four years ago, or are you worse off? That question sticks in everybody's mind, and 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 it's been argued that it's helped win him the election because it turned the listeners from a passive, I'm just watching Reagan give a speech, to active. Okay, I'm actually thinking about what he's asked and I'm 
thinking about my own scenario and seeing if it matches. And I think I've gone a bit off topic, but it's another example of autonomy, right? The idea that if you draw people into the discussion, if you get them involved in the decision-making, maybe you show them the way to go, but you give them, ask them questions to ask how they would go about getting there. You'll increase performance, you'll increase persuasion, and you'll dramatically increase the, the motivation that people have to do the activity. Yeah, it says to me, it's it's really that coaching mentality. It's guiding along and it's getting some clarity about where we need to get to. So that sort of direction, but even the how to get there, that's where the autonomy sits. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I mean, it's not my field of influence coaching, but yeah, I think showcasing how to get there is a good, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Let's talk about actual performance in the role. Talked a little bit about behavior, actions, performance in the role. And if you've got somebody who is not performing at the optimum level, what sort of nudging would you do? What sort of guiding would you do to help them move to this optimal performance level in their role? Gosh, a lot of things you can do. I'm, I'm going to pick something which is just top of mind. I spoke to Dan Pink last week on, the, on, on my show, and he's written a brilliant book on the, on the science behind timing and when you should get somebody to ask somebody to perform. And he's really shown that the time when you decide to take action can have a big impact on how motivating it is. So there's some fascinating research around midpoints of a project. And he says midpoints are really important. It's a really important process to to get people to be motivated for the second half. Often there's a lot of motivation at the beginning and then it wanes and then you can have a really bad second half if you don't acknowledge the midpoint. And the study is is really interesting. It looked at NBA basketball teams and it found that basketball teams that are one point behind at the halftime break have a higher percentage chance of winning than basketball teams that are one point ahead at the mid-break. Now, statistically, that shouldn't happen. If you're a point ahead, you should be more likely to win than if you're a point behind. But there's something behind, there's something in understanding at the halfway point during your team talk that if you're behind, it is a motivator. It encourages you to work to take action. So if somebody is not performing, it's really important at the sort of halfway stage of the project or, you know, between performance reviews to acknowledge that, to say, you know, you're behind at the moment and use it as a chance to motivate them for the second half. Because there's a lot of evidence that suggests, you know, if, you, if you're able to highlight that at the halftime point, you'll improve performance in a way that if you're one point behind at a different stage of the match, when you don't have a halftime team talk to talk about it, it doesn't give you any, it, it, there's a negligible advantage there. So I think that's really important, thinking about motivating during midpoints and the timing of, of motivation as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a, a recent example with a client actually that did some financial review at the start of the year and our financial year is July to June and they were a, a bit behind where they needed to be or where their budget was saying they should have been and they had a deliberate moments and we had conversations around where they needed to go and bringing the team together and they've had their best last five months that they've had ever a lot to be said for what you just said yeah that's good to hear good to hear a bit of validation but it makes sense as well right yeah, absolutely. I guess what we should say is, hey, let's don't underperform for six months and just hope that someone's going to have a halftime talk with you so you can you know, <laughs> spur on for the second six months. That's not the idea, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, exactly. It's acknowledging it if it is the case, but not making it the case in the first place. Absolutely. 
Mate, there was a, a number of things you mentioned at the top of the show in regards to nudges and some behavioral changes that happened. I want to refer to a couple of those because I think that's going to help reinforce the message as well, really good practical examples. But you mentioned how Copenhagen stopped people from littering. Please yeah, this tell is a good one. how this happened. <laughs> yeah, Every country um, needs to listen. Every city needs to listen. Happily. So yeah, Copenhagen is very simple. Utilize distinctiveness. We spoke about it at the top of the show. Von Restoroff effect, the idea that distinct assets stand out more likely to be remembered. Same reason why those letters from the tax man in Australia were more likely to be open. They were distinct. So what did Copenhagen do? They painted their bins neon. <laughs> they made them stand out. They're originally grey. They couldn't be sort of seen amongst the background. They painted them neon, so they stood out. They even painted little neon footprints on the floor in high litter areas so people could, you know, figure out where these bins were. They could see the roots of them. And it reduced littering by 30%, so massively de- decreased the amount of littering. So this is, you know, wonderful example of, of a small, you know, you could spend an extra £100,000 a year to employ garbage collectors to, to go and clean up all this litter, or you could spend hundred dollars on some paint and get the same result arguably maybe a better result um, it's, an, it's a wonderful example of a nudge another one that i love again this is a experiment done by richard shotton who's a uk he's a british i guess behavioral scientist who applies this stuff to marketing and he went into a local pub and he asked the bartender sounds like the start of a joke doesn't it but it's, it's not it's a start of a study he went into a local <laughs> pub joke. <laughs> asked the bartender what's your what's your best selling beer and it was in London, it's this beer called London Pride. Typically, it's this ale. And Richard Shotton said, oh, "Do you mind if I um, put a sl- put a banner on this on this keg when people can see it, which says this is our best selling beer this week?" Bartender said, "Yeah." And they, what they did is they they monitored the sales before and after the sign going up, and they found that the the sales of that beer increased by two times. And interestingly, the sales of other beers and other alcohol didn't decrease. So the, the net sales of the whole pub went up. And again, the idea there is social proof. We're more likely to follow the actions of others. We're more likely to take action if others take action. So great example of you see that a beer is best-selling, you might buy two rather than one when you go. And a final example, this is, you know, this, we're talking about some of the real key nudges here so we've done social proof um, we've done what was the other one we did we did social proof we did distinctiveness there's, there's a very famous one which i'm sure all your listeners know which is scarcity scarcity is the idea that we take action if an item is scarce you know if you're trying to buy tickets to glastonbury you will act in a way that you won't usually do simply because those tickets are scarce and this works in your messaging as well so kfc they ran this incredible campaign where they wanted to find, this is another Australian campaign, actually. This is for KFC Australia. And they had a deal, which was chips for a dollar. And they wanted to find what was the best slogan they could use to sell chips for a dollar. So they got their marketing team, which is one of the best paid and biggest marketing teams in the world. They spent billion, over a billion dollars on marketing every year. They got them to write 90 different slogans. And they came up with incredible slogans creative genius stuff like the colonel's never been so generous chips for a dollar from perth to brisbane they loved australia around uh, chips for a dollar stuff more stuff like that i can't remember at all they tested all of these ads they put them all side by side sent them out and did it on facebook so they had a huge audience they could advertise to and then saw the amount of people who actually clicked and then ordered chips on a delivery app and they found that the most successful message was just pure scarcity it said chips for a dollar limited to four per customer. 
that was the one that encouraged people to take action the most. And if you want to think about it, it's kind of stupid because no one's really buying more than four chips for themselves, four portions of chips for themselves. It's a, it's a useless anchor, but it, it kicks in the scarcity and encourages us to take action. It's amazing how many mates come out the woodwork when you're shouting chips, though, isn't there? <laughs> that's very true. Especially KFC true. chips, they're beautiful with that chicken salt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Around nudges, again, and messaging, is there some bias around what I would say negative nudges work better than positive nudges? There is some evidence behind this. So Daniel Kahneman, who's a Nobel Prize winner for, for his work on on behavioral science, author of the book Thinking Fast and Slow, which many of your listeners will know. One of the principles that he discovered and has been has been championing is uh, loss aversion. And this is the idea that losses, so something negative, actually feel worse than the equivalent gains. So an example here is if you win a hundred pounds and you're asked how that affects your happiness, you'll say a certain amount. And if you lose a hundred pounds and you're asked how that affects your happiness, the effect on your happiness will be two times greater than the equivalent gain if you had won 100. So losses loom larger than gains and, and they affect us in a worse way. And yeah, there's ways that people apply this. You know, there's, I'm sure there's lots of examples in leadership. The ones that always springs to mind is me, for me is, is when, you, when you try and leave Amazon Prime. So if you try and leave Amazon, Amazon are famous for applying lots of these principles and they really apply loss aversion when you try and leave. Most subscription services, when you leave, will say something along the lines of, we're sad to see you go. By the way, if you ever want to come back, we offer all these great things. List them in bullet point order. Amazon could do that. They've got a number of great things that they could list that Prime offers, but they don't. Instead, they say something along the lines of, Phil, you've saved £315 in savings from delivery fees since you joined Amazon Prime. Are you sure you want to lose those savings from now on? If you ditch Amazon Prime, you will lose those savings. So they're just playing on loss aversion. They know that losses feel painful. And so telling me that I would lose out on £315 if I continued purchasing the same amount and didn't have Prime is an incredible influencer. Now, not all of them have to be negative, but I think there's a lot of good examples of yeah, highlighting losses, how highlighting losses can be far more influential and motivational than, than highlighting equivalent gains. Geez, mate, I just thought I have to cancel my Amazon Prime account in about 28 days because I bought some stuff <laughs> and I wanted free delivery. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't forget, you'll be hooked. Honestly, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you forget, you'll be hooked. I better psychologically prepare myself, otherwise I'm going to be stuffed. <laughs> write, down the t- write down exactly when you're going to do it. What, <laughs> what computer are you going to do it on? Make a little commitment device for yourself. Here we go. Shout out, Mr. Bezos. You're not going to get me. <laughs> You're not going to get me. <laughs> You've got my wife, but you're not going to get me. <laughs> so it's in the house already. So, Phil, what I'd like you to do is, if we think about leaders and, and listeners of this podcast, all interested in leadership or, in, or are leaders themselves, what would you say to them? What advice would you give them as an entree? This episode is obviously an entree. You've got Nudge Podcast, which is absolutely fantastic. What would be the entree for them that if this has resonated, understanding them and their need to influence, their need to have effective messaging when they're working with their teams and influencing people, what would be that entree you'd suggest them for them to go into? First thing to remember is 
as a leader, you are influencing naturally. You can't get out. You can't get away from it. We shared that Stanley Milgram example of there's no there's no way around it. You will naturally be influencing. So it's actually, I'd say, you're in your responsibility to educate yourself on that influence, to understand how it works in order to understand how people make decisions based off your influence. So there's a few things I'd recommend. I'd recommend picking up a copy of Robert Cialdini's book, Influence. So this is Robert Cialdini is sort of the godfather of a lot of consumer psychology and his, his 1984 book, Influence, which has been republished in the last couple of years. So it's up to date, don't worry, um, is, is a fantastic resource for, for any leader to really understand the seven ways that people influence one another and particularly how leaders influence as well. If you read that cover to cover, you'll learn an awful lot about how people in your organization make decisions. There's a wonderful book called Joy of Work by Bruce Daisley, and he looks at lots of different things, but leadership being one of them. And he takes the sort of same approach that I've applied, which is looking at the evidence behind how people make decisions and the evidence behind what motivates and shares that. I definitely recommend looking at that. And I also recommended Drive by Daniel Pink as well earlier in the show, and I think that's a that's a great one. But definitely looking at influence. The book Influence is a, is a good stepping stone and understanding that there's a course that i run it's a free course completely free to to take part in it's called the science of marketing course so it doesn't seem particularly relevant for leaders but it does basically more detailed thing that i've done today which is showcasing each of these principles and and showcasing what they are and how they work and how people apply them sometimes in a marketing settings but also in leadership settings as well so if that's a a tool of interest you can go to nitropodcast.com click course and, and you'll see it there but that's probably not number one i would say go and read some of these books first and if they take your fancy then maybe go and check out the course yeah, fantastic, mate. Thanks for sharing us. You've sharing with us. You've given us the the entree, the main meal, and the dessert, and and a second dessert as well. Which I haven't done. I did notice your free course. I haven't done it yet. I plan to do it absolutely. And even after this episode, it's made me even more intrigued about going into it and understanding it a little bit more and how we apply it through leadership. Oh, thanks, Fred. Who or what has had the greatest impact on your own leadership journey? It's an interesting one. I think for me, it's it's probably a choice that a lot of people wouldn't give. But some of the leaders that I really admire are, are sort of fellow people who are, are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to educate people and and showcase that there's this sort of world of world of, of psychology that you can apply. And for me, the leader in that field at the moment is is, is Rory Sutherland. So he's a the British actually he's head of the behavioural science team at Ogilvy in the UK. And he's just a wonderful character, showcases all these irrational ways that we make decisions and showcases them in a way which is just incredibly engaging and really gets people to, to sort of stand up and take action. So I think I consider him in, in a bit of a leader. I've had him on, on Nudge as well. He's brilliant, one incredible mind, incredible person to talk to and is yeah able to frame things in a way to, to really help you understand them. So I, I definitely would consider consider him as a, as a good leader in that regard. In your humble opinion, what's his greatest quality? He's a storyteller. He's a storyteller. We have a bias for stories, obviously. <laughs> like it's, we've evolved to to share stories from around the campfire to you know at the movie theater, and they're just more memorable and more engaging. And Rory is is wonderful at telling stories that have evidential backing and and are, and are valuable to listen to, and telling them in a way that gets people to remember them. And I think one of the problems that definitely marketers have, but leaders as well, is that so many of 
the good principles that you should follow are a bit bland and a bit vanilla and difficult to remember. And it means that all too often we just follow our gut rather than following the evidence. Whereas Rory will share the same insight in a way that makes you remember it. It's a story, it's a it's a tale, it's a word of caution. And that's really valuable because if you can if you can craft something into a story, it sticks in the mind. And if it sticks in the mind, it means people are more likely to take action on it. Yeah, absolutely. Mate, you've had some fantastic experience through your journey. And we're going to wrap this up very soon. But is there anything in your own experience framed around the leadership subject that we're not talking about that we should be? Definitely something that has surprised me is this idea that weaknesses are, are, are well worth sharing. There's so many, there's so much evidence that highlighting weaknesses is a valuable thing to do to build warmth and to motivate people. And I think I, I think you see a lot of leaders, and this is especially true for I think politicians who, you know, really just everybody sort of takes them as the ultimate leader and works down. And you see these leaders who just only ever showcase strengths. It's a classic politician thing to do. Never, ever admit a weakness, even when you clearly have a lot of weaknesses. And I think it's a huge mistake because there's endless evidence that says if you're competent, showcasing that weakness will dramatically increase how much people like you, how much people engage with you, how much people motivate with you. So I think as leaders, something to take on board is don't feel like you have to always be highlighting strengths and positivity. Understand that weaknesses are ultimately your friend. And if you flaunt them in the right way, you'll massively increase your your motivation and your influence. Mate, fantastic insight. Thank you very much for what you've shared today. It's been absolutely fascinating from my side. I know the listeners and watchers will find it fascinating as well in their application across their own leadership journey. And I should articulate too that when I refer to leadership, I'm not just talking about organisational leadership. I'm talking about you may be the leader of your friendship group. You may be the leader of your family. Uh, you may be the leader in a volunteer organisation. You may be the leader in some community organisation you're involved in. So there's such a broad aspect around leadership and ultimately it's about how you work with people and, and the right intent about working with people and helping elevate people, which is my belief on leadership. So You've shown fantastic insight into those thoughts today, mate. You may be a Chelsea supporter, but I think you're a pretty decent bloke. Thank you for being a fantastic guest on the Culture of Things podcast. All right, back at you, Brendan. You're an epic case. It's been great to come on. So happy to, to chat. So really appreciate you inviting me on. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. And I have to say, at the end of this podcast, a nice face for our YouTube channel. But <laughs> it's been fascinating listening to you because when I've heard your podcast – you've got a really great voice for podcasting as well. So it's been an absolute pleasure for me just hearing this lovely voice come through the earphones, mate. So great job. There you go. I've got a man crush now, haven't I? <laughs> just on the voice. Yeah. A voice for radio, I think. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Cheers. You're too far away, mate. I can't, I'm not into long distance relationships. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time, buddy. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Phil's a Chelsea FC supporter, but thankfully he turned out to be one of the decent ones. A lot fascinated me about the conversation with Phil, but above all, it was his depth of knowledge around psychology, human behaviour, and the weapons of social seduction. For more information, check out Phil's podcast, Nudge.
It's a great listen and you'll learn a lot about the science behind great marketing. Leadership involves taking action. What have you learned today that you'll take action on in your leadership journey? These were my three key takeaways from my conversation with Phil. My first key takeaway, leaders understand their influence. Educate yourself on the influence you have over people, on how people make decisions. Influence is powerful and with great power comes great responsibility. To use the responsibility wisely, leaders must understand their influence. My second key takeaway, leaders are likable. Rita Pearson did a TED Talk titled Every Kid Needs a Champion. The key line I remember most is kids don't learn from teachers they don't like. Guess what? Employees won't follow a leader they don't like. Be competent in your role and show your weaknesses. That's how you increase your likability as a leader. My third key takeaway, leaders motivate people. To navigate the journey to motivation, follow the map. Mastery, Autonomy, Purpose from Daniel Pink. Mastery is the desire to improve and seeing your potential as unlimited. Autonomy is controlling what you do, when you do it, and who you do it with. And purpose is connecting your role to the greater cause. Leaders follow the map and motivate people. So in summary, my three key takeaways were, leaders understand their influence, leaders are likable, and leaders motivate people. What are your key takeaways from the interview? Let me know at thecultureofthings.com on YouTube or via our socials. Thanks for joining me. And remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thank you for listening to the Culture of Things podcast with Brendan Rogers. Please visit brendanrogers.com.au to access the show notes. If you love the Culture of Things podcast, please subscribe, rate and give a review on Apple Podcasts. And remember, a healthy culture is your competitive advantage.